Revelation 16, the bold judgments, uh, we see here the end of the world. But, of course, it's not the end of the book. So what's going to happen is we're going to end the bold judgments. We won't even look at bowl 7 tonight. We'll save that for next week. And what will happen is uh, we'll see an expansion on the things that we are talking about with Babylon. Babylon becomes the theme, and the judgment on Babylon, and the judgment on the great whore, the great harlot, who is the antithesis of the church, the spotless bride of Christ. That's what's coming up, okay? We won't get there tonight, but that's where we will be. So, the bold judgments are, when we saw the seals and we saw the trumpets, they were temporal judgments. They were terrible judgments, but uh, they did have uh, an end in sight. Uh, they came one upon another and such like that. They ended with the second coming of Christ. Here in the bold judgments, we only see the second coming of Christ alluded to because the entire chapter is judgment. So, it's about the lost, no mercy. It lines up perfectly, doesn't, no, not perfectly. It lines up with what happened to Egypt. You know, we should be thinking about Egypt and Israel escaping uh, and um, the ten plagues on Egypt, going through the Red Sea, the Red Sea opens up for them. Okay, these are all the thoughts that we know and need to keep in mind as we go through here tonight. Okay, so um, let's just begin with chapter 16, verse 1. I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth. And note, here's the key phrase. The seven bowls of the wrath of God. So that's what we see happening. The, with the trumpets, with the, uh, with the seals, we saw that one of them uh, had to do with the second coming. Uh, this, actually, all seven are bowls of God's wrath, and I think it's his final wrath, really, is what we're talking about. Uh, remember, don't, don't think of sequence. Don't think of, well, this happens, and then a little bit later this happens, a little bit later this happens. Really, it's hard to do, but kind of think simultaneous judgments coming fast and furious right on top of each other. And, of course, the people are overwhelmed. And uh, instead of repenting, they curse. So that's what we're thinking about. So all that. Now, in I didn't mention this before, but it's a good place to put it. Uh, there are various views of uh, eschatology. Um, I'm an amillennialist. Um, most of you are. Not all, I know, but... Most are, and, and we have a few post mills. We even have a, 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 some, a couple of pre mill, um, but I don't think they're pre mill dispensational, which is very, very different. Um, you know, there's different views, and, and good men disagree, but um, our mills don't always agree with each other either on all the points. And um, our, our good friend, Sam Waldron, Dr. Sam Waldron, good brother, like to have him out here again someday. He's a very busy man, but. Um, you know, he holds to a theory that is very, very common uh, amongst uh, Amils. It's called the little season. Now, I personally am not a little season guy myself. I'll explain what the little season is, though, try to be fair with it. Uh, the little season is a period of time, and, and Sam Walden's written two books on eschatology, The End Times Made Simple, More End Times Made Simple. His definition, his definition, because I took his class on eschatology, too, uh, just to be fair to, to our brother Waldron, um, he says the little season is a short period of time, maybe two weeks, just guessing, 
where actually chapter 16 works its way through. And these things just come fast and furious, right on top of each other, right before the coming of the Lord. The argument against that is, then you'd know when the Lord's coming. Okay, and that's true, you, you would. You know, it's, it's almost here, you know, this is it. That, that's a good argument against it. It actually is an argument that persuades me not to hold to this view. But many, many good men do hold to that view. And, and it's a legitimate view. And uh, their argument to that would be, we don't believe in the any moment coming of the Lord. We believe in the imminent coming of the Lord, that he's going to be coming soon. Okay. And so the theory is, okay, two weeks? Okay. We, that, that's really a very, very short amount of time. So I'm not trying to confuse you with that. And they may be right. I tend to take the bulls more spiritually than that, like, and uh, liken them to the plagues of Egypt, which were literal. I see the bulls as symbolic of God's judgments on the world, taking the form of God's judgments on Egypt. Egypt was judged with judgments, and of course, um, this is the whole world being judged. But let me just say this about eschatology. We need to always be charitable. We need to be kind. I, I make no problem, I have no problem in saying I believe dispensationalism is, is uh, misguided and wrong. But there's good people that believe in dispensationalism too. But I just don't think that's the proper way to interpret the scriptures on many levels. But whatever you think about eschatology, you do have to realize you probably don't have it all figured out. You know, there, there, there's mistakes, holes in every system. Sometimes um, people avoid eschatology because they realize that it's easier to punch holes in whatever the person's saying than it is to actually say what, what actually is going to happen. Okay. And I know people stand up, uh, uh, very much pontificate, and say, here's the way it is, and it's going to be just like this. And they're almost always proven wrong, even in their own lifetime. So do keep that in mind. Let me just say there's five principles to keep in mind as we go through the book of Revelation, and we'll have to keep these in mind tonight. Number one, the interpretation of Revelation should be at least somewhat understandable and relevant to the people of the first century. They ought to be able to get something out of it. They ought to be able to, as they listened to it, it was directed to them. It, it would be ridiculous to write a letter to somebody that had nothing to do with them. Okay, that would be ridiculous. No, it's got something to do with them. And uh, we'll see, even tonight, there'll be an allusion to something that goes back to the seven churches. Second of all, God did not inspire the book to be a step-by-step guide to understand the future. In fact, prophecy never does that. Prophecy is not intended to be a step-by-step guide. Some are more clear than others, you know, and of course the greatest prophecy of all was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it became more clear and more clear and more clear but God doesn't intend us to be looking at the Bible like we were fortune tellers. Going to the fortune teller and he's going to tell us what's going to happen. That, that's really not the purpose. The purpose of prophecy is, well, what is the purpose of prophecy? The purpose of prophecy is to show that God's in control of everything. And because of that, we should be encouraged in spite of outward difficulties. And it really is supposed to really encourage people in persecution. When you're in a time of persecution, prophecy should encourage you. So that's a third thing. A fourth thing, 
that we can say. Uh, the book of Revelation is written in general terms, by writing it in general terms, uh, instead of absolute specifics. I know our dispensational friends put it into a 70-year period of time, uh, really get specific with it. They don't agree with each other, but they get very specific. Well, with all that being said and done, we're not supposed to try to figure out specifically all the symbols and know what they mean. Because if we start going down that route, what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, here's the mark of the beast. You can't buy or sell without it. It, it must be um, Bitcoin, or it must be an ATM card, or it must be an ATM machine, or, you know, there's these scorpions that uh, sting people. It must be Black Hawk helicopters because they can sting, you know, no. Okay. That's where you really go off. Don't, don't try to do that. That's not what it is. These are, these are symbols. And they aren't symbols to try to be figured out some future time people will finally say, oh, that's the machine, or that's the invention, or that, no. That is not the purpose of Revelation. And the last purpose I would say is to keep in mind is that um, it plainly shows there's a day of judgment, there's a day of reckoning, there's a day where the world will end, the world that we know will end, and we'll be glad that it's gone because it'll be replaced, just like we'll have new bodies in the new heaven and earth. We'll have new bodies, perfect bodies, glorified bodies. The earth will be perfected, and all of creation will be perfected, and heaven and earth will be one. And uh, it's kind of hard to understand that, I, I know, but we believe it by faith, and we see what God's going to do. And the flip side of that is, just like the flip side that we've been looking in in our Bible study class about reprobation, the flip side is the lost will be punished for all their sins, all their sins, including their refusal to bow before God. So, uh, here we go. Let's go through the bold judgments. Think of Egypt. I'll point it out as we go. Verse number two. Bowl one is verse number two. Painful sores. You know, and so it says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So this is on the lost. This happens to the lost, those that have the mark of the beast. I think we could say by implication that uh, if there are Christians around at this particular time, uh, they're protected from that because they don't have the mark of the beast. They have the Lord's mark instead. But those that bear the mark of the beast, in other words, the lost, are, are afflicted with painful sores. The next one, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. It became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Well, if we're going to take everything literally, or we should always take things literally if we can, we take them symbolically, if they're meant to be taken symbolically. We've seen throughout the book, a fourth of the waters touched, a third of the waters touched. Here it says everything. That's because I believe we're at the end. We're at the end here. And so just like the, the, the Nile and the springs were turned to blood in the time of Israel and their deliverance, here's the blood being poured out, uh, of course, on, on the sea and the living creatures and such like that. It's complete judgment. Nothing's left. So if we can take that literally, I think we can. This is just uh, an extreme, well, 
taking it literally in a symbolic sense, if I could say it that way. This is judgment. This is final judgment. This is it. There's no coming back from this. Okay. Uh, Egypt came back. Egypt came back historically. Uh, they had terrible decimation, but they did come back, and there still was an Egypt afterwards. After, and they recovered and became strong again. Uh, that won't happen here. This is the end. And we're going to read that end specifically in the next few weeks. Okay, because we're going to go over this material in chapter 17, 18, 19. Okay. We'll see the Battle of Armageddon in its fullness in chapter 19. Okay. Bowl 3, we saw. Um, uh, you know, uh, oh, sorry, that was the bowl 2. Bowl 3, got a little ahead of myself. Third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say. Now here's what he has to say. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. And then notice this. It is what they deserve. Okay. That's it. This is what they deserve. You know. And um, they shed blood. Now they have blood to drink. And uh, Isaiah 49, 26, I'll just read it to you. Isaiah 49, 26 says much the same thing. It says, I'll make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So there we see the motif of the end of the world and the vindication of the saints. That's Isaiah 49, 26. In Christ, we receive grace. But if you're not in Christ, you get the very wrath that you deserve. And um, that's what it says. They've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And bowl number eight the, or sorry, verse number eight, bowl number four. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Now we saw uh, the, a third of the sun, moon, and stars being plagued in the fourth trumpet, that was a partial punishment. Here, it's total. Again, total punishment. Scorching and burning heat. Um, if our dispensational friends believed in global warming, that's probably where they'd find it. You know, I think a lot of them don't, so they don't find it there. But uh, scorching and burning heat, which is not one of the plagues on Egypt, by the way. Okay, so this one doesn't follow uh, the actual motif. But this is a counterpoint. Just keep your finger here. Turn back to Revelation 7.16. I think it's an important point. Revelation 7.16. Here's the counterpoint to the fourth bowl. Okay. We'll read 15 through 17 and then center in on 16. Talking about those, the saints, that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple 
and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he'll guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay. So that's what we're talking about there, you know. And uh, as you take a look at that, uh, the sun is scorching these people with intense heat. And it's a terrible, terrible contrast uh, to what they're suffering with the vindication of the saints and the glory of the saints who do not hunger. They do not thirst. They don't have to drink blood. They don't, they, you know, they're not thirsty. They have springs of living water. And the sun doesn't strike them. And it doesn't uh, have any scorching heat. I remember, you know, uh, I've, I've given the illustration a long time ago before, but one of the worst times when we first moved to Tucson and we weren't really uh, aware of what the desert can do to you. You know, we were out hiking a little bit. And uh, now we had to make our way back to the car. That didn't have air conditioning. <laughs> either. So we're just struggling to get back to the car. At least I was struggling. I can only speak for myself. Struggling to get back to the car. Wanted to, we had no water. It was hot as can be. The sun was scorching us, but we weren't dying, you know. Didn't die, obviously, you know. And um, we stopped in the A&W root beer. Never had an A&W root beer that tasted so good as, as that one did that day, you know. It was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, that's it, you know. The, the scorching heat of the sun, you know. Did they repent? Did they repent? No, they did not repent and give him glory. Okay, so now we go to the fifth angel. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now, now we're going to really see this um, as we go further you know, into chapter 17, and we start talking about Babylon and everything like that. But the kingdom of the beast, the throne of the beast, its kingdom of course, is what he rules over, you know, as a temporal ruler. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Notice the sores of verse number two. They're still there, aren't they? They're still there. They're cursing God in the midst of the darkness they're gnashing their teeth, they're gnawing on their tongues because they're in such agony, but they don't give God glory. Instead, what little bit they can use with their tongues, uh, they're going to use to blaspheme God. You know? So they, they gnaw their tongues and they do not repent of their deeds. And this is like the darkness over Egypt. But the children of Israel had light, you know, and God made a big distinction there. Uh, in a miraculous way, is all you could say. Children of uh, the Egypt, the Egyptians were in plunge into darkness. The Bible calls it so thick that they couldn't even move. And the children of Israel had light in their things. Well, what we're talking about here again is the difference God makes between His people and the people of the world, the people of the beast, the people of the false prophet. Um, you know, pain, anguish from the sores. Physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain. Still they don't repent. 
There appears to be an opportunity to repent, but instead they curse God. Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Why is God doing this to me? The darkness comes on the throne of the beast. His kingdom, the world, is plunged into darkness. That was the ninth plague in, in Egypt. What happened after the ninth plague, remember? Uh, the tenth plague, right? That was, that was it. Yeah, of course it was tenth, yeah. But what was the tenth plague? The tenth plague was the, the firstborn dying, the death of the firstborn, the most horrendous plague of all that finally uh, caused the end of it all. And the Egyptians drove the Israelites out, gave them, gave them what they needed, gave them uh, gold and silver and jewels and, and told them to leave as quickly as they can. You know. And that was the death of the firstborn that happened to the Egyptians. Uh, note that the Canaanites when they went into the land of Canaan, the Canaanites used to sacrifice their firstborn. They willingly gave their firstborn to their gods. That's shocking. It's almost unthinkable. They can imagine that you would take your very first baby born and kill it, you know? Sacrifice it to the gods and they would die. And say, so, well, aren't you glad people don't do that anymore? Okay. You get me what I mean. Okay. Yeah. The lost will not give glory to God with their tongue, so they gnaw on their tongues in agony. You know, darkness is horrible. Sores from, from head to toe are, are horrible. But unlike the plagues of Egypt, every one of those Egyptian plagues, except for the last one, the death of the firstborn, were undone. They happened, and then they were... They relented because they were temporal judgments. Here, it's not. They're blasphemers, and they, they speak against the Lord. Um, turn to 13.1. Keep your finger here. 13.1. <clears throat> the beast and those that bear the mark of the beast. The beast is a blasphemer. It says in 13.1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems on its head. Remember, horns are power. It means power, symbolically, you know. The heads are wisdom. And blasphemous names on its heads. And then five and six. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It's a limited period of time. And I think it's really the entire... Uh, New Testament age here that we're living in. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is, the, his dwelling that is those who dwell in heaven. So we see blasphemy and cursing going together here. And now we come to the most famous part of, of Revelation in, in modern America. As, aside from 666 and the Antichrist, there's three things about everybody knows about Revelation. There's 666, there's the Antichrist, there's Armageddon, you know. And um, you'll find very few lost people that aren't aware of this. Although some might think Armageddon's a movie about uh, blowing up asteroids or something, but, uh, you know. <laughs> Why did they call it Armageddon? It's the end of the world. That's, that's what Hollywood likes to do. They take these uh, biblical symbols and, and misuse them 
in different ways to, for their own entertainment, which nothing wrong with entertainment when it's done properly and good, but that's what Hollywood loves to do. The Hollywood, you know, it's kind of interesting. Hollywood loves to take biblical themes, but not really make them biblical. You know, but it uses kind of the same motif, you know, and uh, make their stories that way. It's just, you'll notice it if you really pay close attention, you know. Armageddon's about the end of the world. That asteroid's going to destroy the earth. You know, just like the Battle of Armageddon does, you know. Okay. So, sixth bowl. And this is a long one, okay. So, let's just read it, and then we'll talk about it bit by bit. Okay. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. Why? Why would the water be dried up? To prepare the way for the kings from the east. Okay, the water's going to dry up. They're going to be able to march right through there. That's the whole point. And I saw it coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. There's your unholy trinity there. It's really not a trinity at all. It's a false trinity, but there's three of them. The beast and, okay. Out of their mouth, three unclean spirits, like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, now now listen to this, in the midst of all this, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay. I want you to notice, first of all, God in his providence is the one that has the river Euphrates dried up so the nations can assemble. God's in control of this. Okay. God dried up the Red Sea so Israel could escape. And, of course, you know what happened after that, right? The Egyptians tried to follow, and the waters came upon them and destroyed them. And, and Pharaoh suffered, well, Pharaoh himself died, and there was great destruction uh, to Pharaoh's army. It took him many years to recover, you know. Well, God's drying up this river. Forty years later, um, after wilderness wandering, God dried up the Jordan River so that the Israelites could cross over into Canaan land, okay? And that was done by God. Well, here it is. The Euphrates now is being dried up. Why? To prepare the way for the kings. And it says specifically for the kings of the east. Later it would say the whole world. But here it says the kings from the east. Because most of, a great majority of um, Israel's enemies came from the east. You know, there was, they, they were there. That's where they happened to be. As you look on a map, you can see that. You know. And the Euphrates is a river which helped protect Babylon. It's dried up. So spiritual Babylon can have an easy entry into the war that will destroy them. Okay? So they come from the east, constant thorn in Israel's side, also from the north, as Euphrates was to the north, and it was a, a northern boundary for Israel's enemies. And this is a worldwide gathering of the kings. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the unholy, fake trinity are all involved to gather the enemies of God, to fight against God. Frogs come out of their mouth. That's pretty gross. But what they symbolize is, is more gross than frogs. 
You know, they symbolize deceiving spirits who perform lies and lying signs. They're called unclean spirits, the demonic spirits. And you might remember one of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry was to cast out unclean spirits and, and destroy the forces of Satan. That's what he would do as everywhere he went. And uh, the unclean spirits would cry out for, for the Lord to leave them alone even. The most famous example being where they went into the pigs. The Lord let them go into the pigs. The pigs, of course, ran and, and, and committed suicide, basically, uh, because of the unclean spirits that entered into them. This is a preparation for a spiritual battle. But spoiler alert here, there ain't going to be a battle. Not tonight. And uh, there will be a battle when, they find, when we finally get to the very end. But uh, not a single one of God's enemies will fire a shot or throw a spear or do anything. And the saints that come with the Lord, they aren't going to do anything either. They're just going to ride behind and the Lord will destroy them with the word of his mouth. One simple word will fell them. It's what's going to happen. Literally. And so this, this becomes the end of the world as we know it. It happens very suddenly. I believe it, it happens simultaneously uh, with the, the second coming, with the second coming being moments before and the end of the world coming after, like that, in sequence that way. Well, here they're gathering for that. But verse 15, there's a promise to the believers in the midst of this. It's a promise and a threat. Realize that. It's a promise and a threat. What's he say? Behold, verse 15, I'm coming like a thief. Jesus said, if you knew the hour the thief was going to come and break in, you'd have protected yourself. Okay? So that's a warning to Christian and non-Christian alike, really. And... Um, some would say, well, if I knew when the Lord was coming, I'd clean up my act right before he came. Well, you don't get that opportunity. You don't get that chance. You can't do that, okay, because you don't know when he's coming. Now look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. Just keep your finger here and go there. Here it's kind of a threat that's given. It's a blessing. I come as a thief and thief in the night and all that, this this whole idea of thief comes up at least seven times that I could find in the New Testament, just doing a really quick search, uh, word search on the word thief and, and um, eschatology that way. A couple of them are in Gospels, and then there's others that come. But it, a very common saying that he's coming like a thief, and you just don't know when that's going to be. And this is the, to the church in Sardis. Let's go back to... 3 verse 1. Church in Sardis is a, a very sad church. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now I want you to think of yourself as a person in the church of Sardis that's getting this, this um, report about your church, the church that you're a part of. And then as we've gone through the book, all of a sudden we say, behold, I'm coming like a thief. 
Okay, that's, that's going to kind of startle you when that's said again because of what's already been said to you. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your works, I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. <laughs> that's not a promise. That's a threat. Okay. What's it say over here? Now we're back in the seventh bowl or the sixth bowl again. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. <laughs> okay. Wake up. You know, he tells Sardis. Uh, if you didn't get it the first time in Sardis, you better get it now. Because here it is again. Wake up. You know keep his garments on. And it's not just the Sardis. It, it uh, really becomes very applicable to us too, doesn't it? Very applicable to us, you know. It's a promise and a threat. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on. Instead, you're ready. You're working. You're, you're not sleeping and you're not just uh, lazing around that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Okay. It's a wake-up call to the church there. And the place where they gather is called, in the Hebrew, Armageddon. And that's interesting in of itself. I want you to turn to another passage, uh, 2 Kings chapter 23. Keep your finger here again. Why is it Armageddon? Why do we call it? Why does God call it Armageddon? He's taking us back to something else. There's a reason for this. The reason is said in the Hebrew, Armageddon. So we're in 2 Kings 23, and just we'll give the account, and then we'll apply it. Okay. 2 Kings 23, starting in verse number 28. Josiah. Josiah, a good king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. Okay, so here's a battle between two of the world's superpowers of that day. Okay, um, Assyria in decline, uh, Egypt actually getting stronger. Okay, so they went up to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo. Evidently, it's not said specifically, but he must have aligned himself with the Assyrians for whatever odd reason that he would do that. But it appears to be what has happened here. Well, at any rate, he's killed by Pharaoh Necho. Of course, not literally Pharaoh himself killed him, but killed in battle. Killed by Pharaoh at, at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in the chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. And he was a terrible king. In fact, every king after this is now terrible. Okay. Until the Babylonian captivity, until they come back. So this, this, is, the, this is the beginning of the end for Judah before their captivity. Uh, take a look back at, just go back to t verse 25. Um, 
of, of the same chapter, 2 Kings 23. We'll back up a bit here. Okay. Um, let's go back to, to verse 24. Moreover, this is some of the works that Josiah did. Uh, the Passover was in the 18th year of the king. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and all the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Um, the word of God had actually vanished for a, a short period of time. It wasn't known. And Hilkiah found it. They read it. They repented. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And we could say others before that too. And the Lord said, I'll remove Judah also out of my sight as I've removed Israel I'll cast off this city as I, that I've chosen, uh, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Of course, that led to the destruction of the first temple. Um, it led to the Babylonian captivity. It, it led to 70 years that they were out of the land. By God's grace, though, they came back into the land. By God's grace, um, although a, a, true, a true royal establishment wasn't recreated with kings and such. Kind of, they had some independence for a time. And, but we have a line. We have a line that we can follow. A, 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 what do you call that? Genealogy. A genealogical line. There you go. A genealogical line that you can follow all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the last king and the great king. And there are no other kings Jesus didn't have an heir. He didn't need an heir because he's the king forever. Okay? And uh, to never die after his death and resurrection. So a sad ending to the good king Josiah. Now back to the book of Revelation. And we'll conclude this and bring this to a head here. Um, the Lord gives the reason why this happened. And it wasn't for the sins of Josiah, it was for the sins of the people. And he dies in Megiddo. It happened so that God can begin to judge Judah. Armageddon in the Hebrew is Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, picturing the disastrous battle that began the judgment of Judah. Well, that was a temporal judgment. This is Armageddon, the judgment of the entire world. So Armageddon is symbolic of the powers of the earth coming against God, and of course, it will all come to nothing. So what should you do to prepare for the Battle of Armageddon? Join a militia? You know, uh, buy an assault rifle? I mean, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of things you could... No, no, that's, that's not going to happen. You, whatever you do, it, it's not going to be a battle like that. There'll be no battle. It, it will never happen. Chapter 19 is going to tell us that. And the end isn't marked by a lot of things that you can see. It's marked by suddenness and surprise. And our friend Sam Walden would admit that too. Except he would say, and I've asked him personally, so I know he says it. He'd say, well, he says, 
Yeah, if you live in those last two weeks, you're going to know, you know, because it's not uh, the it's not the any second or any moment coming of the Lord. It's the imminent coming of the Lord. I see where he's coming from, I, even if I don't agree. But I just mention him because uh, he's a good man, and many of you know him, and we appreciate him. But the end isn't marked by a lot of the things you see. It's marked by suddenness and surprise, which is why I don't hold to the little season uh, personally myself, but many, many fine people do. You know, Armageddon, I believe, if I can sum it up with what it is. Armageddon is the destruction of the lost at the last day. And what does it mean for us? Okay, well, Armageddon is Christians living faithfully in this world, keeping awake, keeping their garments on, doing what they're supposed to do, doing what they would do if they knew this was their last day on earth. You know, doing what they can do, doing what they're supposed to do. You know, being faithful to the Lord and being ready for the coming of the Lord. You say, well, that's not going to be a very exciting book to write. I don't think you can get a bestseller out of that one. Well, you probably won't, <laughs> you know. But you're going to get the truth, you know, that's it. You're not going to make a very good movie. Okay, I admit it, it probably won't be a real exciting movie that, that uh, will make a lot of money. But um, it's what's going to happen, you know. It's the end of the world. So next time, next week, we will actually do the seventh bowl and then go into... Uh, the great prostitute and the beast that we find in 17. It's going to be some dark stuff now, 17, 18, and 19. But it is the judgment of God uh, on a world that turns against him and will not listen to him. And it will culminate in what we could call the Battle of Armageddon. But uh, there's only one shot fired, and that's from the mouth of the lamb. Boom. And it's over. Just like that. Okay. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. Your word is not all comfort. For there is no comfort to the lost. There is no rest for the wicked. That's what you say. And Lord, Lord help us to believe that. Today, it's our job. Almost all here, I'm sure, are Christians. Today it's our job to keep our garments on, to stay awake, to serve you, to serve you to the best of our abilities, to not fall asleep. We know that uh, churches can fall asleep. We saw Sardis, you know, in, in grave danger, Lord. And so we would just pray that we would not be like that. We pray instead we'd be those that look to you. And we have no idea if you're going to come in our lifetime or not. We have no idea if that's going to be what happens or if we're going to go to you. Well, ultimately, Lord, in the, the grand scheme of things, a million years from now, it's really not going to matter which one it was. But instead, for it, Father, help us to not just simply think that we are the terminal generation. We are the ones that are the most important. We're the ones where everything's coming down. It's all because of us. It's very easy for us to think that we are the most important Lord, help us to realize our importance is because of you, not during the time period that we live in. Our importance is in serving you. Our importance is in following you. Our importance is because you love us. 
That's the reason, Father. And whether you come tomorrow or next month or 10,000 years from now, Father, it'll be exactly the way you've planned it and it'll come out exactly the way that you've told us that it will be with the lost being judged and the saints being vindicated for all eternity. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ the Lord. In his name we pray, amen.